This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Pip Rasmussen here for a sneaky bonus app of the podcast. If you listen to Triple J, you've heard Dr. Carl lending his big science brain to mornings. But what happens when you hear Dr. Carl after dark? Well, we found out on The Hookup for a Science Week special focusing on everything to do with sex, love and bodily fluids. When we asked for your questions, our inbox was flooded with inquiries about dicks, clits, menstrual cycles, yeast infections, orgasms, pheromones and so much more. And who better to find answers alongside Dr. Carl? None other than Dr. Teresa Larkin. She's a senior lecturer at the University of Wollongong who teaches anatomy and physiology. Basically, she knows a hell of a lot about the human body. So strap in because you're about to learn some shit and hear your favourite science daddy talk dirty. Dr. Carl and Dr. Larkin, welcome to The Hookup. Thank you. Hello. Uh, Dr. Carl, how are you feeling about this after hours version of Science Hour? Well, things go in circles. I did this back in the early days on Triple J and even Double J. So welcome back, baby. Yeah, love to have you here. Um, Dr. Larkin, you've done radio before, but Mm -hmm. are you prepared for the rogueness of the hookup? Oh, I don't know. It's not quite the same as the afternoon ABC Laura Drive audience. So let's see how it goes. (laughs) I can't wait. This is so good. Thank you so much both for being here. It's such an honour. Let's kick off with a question from Dr Lou. Uh, Hey, doctors. Um, I'm curious, um, how fast does sperm travel? Well, I'm happy to answer that one, Dr Lou. So sperm travel at around uh, 20 centimetres per hour, which might not sound like a lot, but that's pretty much the distance they end up going. So they travel around 20 centimetres to pass through the vagina, cervix, uterus, into the tubes, and that takes them about one hour. To put that into perspective with us humans, if we think about how many times the body length of a sperm that is, that's actually 3,000 times their length. So it's the equivalent of an average sized human traveling around five to five and a half kilometers. So it's a pretty hefty journey. And if you imagine if that's say like an ocean swimmer, you know, swimming through that salty water and the currents, I actually looked up to see what a world record was for that. And for about a 5K ocean swim, the world record is pretty much exactly the same. So there you go. Who would have known that our fastest ocean swimmers over that long distance the equivalent speed of our sperm. Wow. <laughs> the boys can swim. <laughs> yeah, they can. <laughs> Dr. Carl, any thoughts? Yeah, well, they, once they're there, they can survive for up to five days. So they're not just gone by the next morning. Five days they can hang around for. I love it. Thanks so much for coming through, Lou. We've got Alexander on the line as well. Alexander, what have you got for us? Hi, doctors. I was uh, wondering if you could uh, tell us if we can smell our ideal sexual partner. Yes and no. There are some experiments done back in the 1990s by Klaus, K-L-A-U-S, Wedekind, W-E-D-E-K-E-N-D, a Swiss person, who gave T-shirts that had been worn by people for two days and who had been instructed to not smoke, not eat spicy foods, etc., etc., gave these T-shirts to women to smell. These women were either on the pill, which biochemically mimics being pregnant in some ways, or not. Now, here's something interesting. Part of your immune system expresses itself in the outside world through your sweat. Um, And so women who were on the pill 
were attracted to men who had a similar immune system, which makes sense because women who are pregnant attract to men who've got a similar immune system, part of the family they'll look after them. But women who were potentially fertile were attracted to men with an opposite system. The advantage of an opposite system is if uh, one person is resistant to diseases ABC, the other person to diseases XYZ, then the baby, the fruit of their loins, will be resistant to both ABC and XYZ. Um, so that was an advantage for them to hang around. There is a weird thing. Now, suppose a woman hangs out with a guy and is attracted to him um, for various reasons while she's on the pill. Then she decides to go off the pill to get pregnant and she wakes up in the morning and thinks, who's this funny-smelling man? They have a bit more difficulty in getting pregnant, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Dr. Teresa, you got anything on this? Yeah, I think pheromones and scent and our sense of smell is so interesting. And we do have this, uh, these special receptors in our nasal septum that are able to smell pheromones. And so those pheromones, they are secreted, you know, onto our skin from particular glands, especially in the regions of our underarms and our perineum, which is where our external genitalia are. And yeah, the, the nasal cavity can actually smell those certain pheromones and, and in addition, other scents of a person. And what's super interesting is that those specific nerves, they connect to parts of the brain that are important for emotion and memory. And that's why, you know, we all know that, uh, that's, that you know, sense can, can trigger different memories and things like that. And so that's also connected to other parts of the brain that produce hormones. So, yeah, not only can we smell pheromones in terms of sexual attraction, but this is actually the way that women can cycle together in terms of their menstrual cycles. So based on those pheromones, because of their social and sexual aspects. Thank you so much for the question, Dr. Alexander. I'm going to move on to Wendy here from Canberra. Wendy, what's your question for our doctors? I am 24 weeks pregnant with my first child and I have noticed that over the last few weeks in particular, I am really damp in my nether regions and uh, it's not the sexy kind of damp and it's not like I'm my bladder's leaking or anything like that. I'm just damp. That sounds very uncomfortable. <laughs> awesome. um, it's it's kind of frustrating because I get changed at the end of the day and my underwear is soaked and I'm like, what is going on? Yeah, so all hormone driven. So especially in pregnancy when the hormones are changing and there's real increases in the female hormone progesterone, which means for gestation. And that really changes, especially the cervical mucus. So even over the course of a normal menstrual cycle, there are changes in the cervical mucus because as there's an increase in estrogen leading up to ovulation, the mucus becomes thinner because it wants to promote sperm entry and promote fertilization. Whereas later in the cycle, when we have higher levels of the progesterone, the mucus is thicker because the body's assuming that there was a, a fertilization and there's going to be a pregnancy and it doesn't want another one. And so that's similar in pregnancy. So in pregnancy with high levels of progesterone, the body wants to protect the cervix and protect the uterus and the growing baby. So the mucus is thicker and it's more like towards the end of the cycle so that that's a protective mechanism. Amazing. Yeah. Just hormone levels stopping me yeah. from basically getting anything I don't want up there. <laughs> yeah, and allow me yeah, just that's right. Being like, and always mucus secretions that are going downwards, you know, out of the vagina and external, they're also helping carry out, you know, any sort of 
bacteria that's unwanted, anything like that going externally, then it just also keeps yeah the whole environment really safe. Oh, excellent. At least I know everything's going well. That's right. And I'm sure your smell might be heightened as well, talking about the smell in the previous topic, which is also related to those increases in estrogen. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. I can smell like my partner, um, mm. like different foods, mm. all sorts of things. Now, look, um, a lot of people were coming through with some amazing questions and they couldn't make it here tonight. And one such person got in touch into our DMs. Bree, this is her question. Hey, I'm Bree from Sydney and I would like to ask Dr. Carl, what is the deal with period poos and why are they just the worst thing ever? Now, Dr. Carl, you just told me you have no idea what a period poo is. <laughs> yeah, is it somebody being anxious or super calm during a period or does it mean increased or decreased frequency of defecation during a period or does it mean increased or decreased volume and... Is it something that happens at the beginning or the middle or the end? It's kind of like all of the above, but I'm going to throw this one to Dr. <laughs> Teresa. Let's get down to it because I know exactly what Bree is talking about here. <laughs> That's right. I reckon a lot of women out there or people who have their periods would be understanding this. Again, it's all about the changes in the cycle with the hormones. So in the second half of the menstrual cycle, there's the higher levels of the progesterone and that's actually a bit of a constipation type hormone. So again, some women in pregnancy, they probably experience some constipation, especially early on. And then what happens during the menstrual cycle, if there has been no ovulation, then exactly 12 days after that egg is released and it hasn't been ovulated, the body has a signal to say, no, you know, no fertilization, we're not gonna be pregnant. And so everything changes at that point. So leading up until that point, we have this increase in progesterone, you know, this increasing thickening of the uterus layers. And all of that is, can also contribute to um, the constipation. So at that point, the hormones drop off. And so that drop from having a lot of progesterone that's more sort of a constipation thing to dropping off is where we can have a response where then there's a change in the impact on the motility of the digestive tract and that can result in, in diarrhoea, essentially. So in an increase in the movement through the gastrointestinal tract. That is so interesting. I'm so happy that we finally got an answer for that. <laughs> I'm going to go to Dr. Dom from Wollongbar. Dr. Dom, tell us, what is your question? Hey, doctors. I just want to know if women can get the equivalent to men with the whiskey dick. Um, so like when a male has obviously a lot of alcohol, and then obviously wants to have sex and is turned on but can't get it up. So I just want to know if women can have the same sort of thing. Uh, let, let me do a little bit and hand over to Dr. Teresa who knows more about this than I do. In the case of men, um, you have the desire. Shakespeare got this right. But the alcohol uh, reduces the production of testosterone, um, which helps with getting an erection. So less testosterone, less of an erection. Women may also find it harder to orgasm or their uh, orgasms may feel less intense and I don't know why. Teresa? All I can think with that one is that um, in terms of arousal and erection of even the erectile tissues in, with female sex organs um, and is an orgasm is that that relies on a lot of blood flow to that area. So in general, alcohol is actually fairly, um, you know, it opens the blood vessels and that's why some people can get red in the face. So, yeah, I'm actually not sure because a part of me wonders, does that mean that 
it does increase the blood flow in that area, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't know exactly, you know, on where the blood flow is being diverted if that happens differently with excess alcohol consumption. On the line as well, I have got Dr. William. Dr. William, what is your question? I'm wondering, um, what is female ejaculation or squirting and is it real? Yeah, this is like a question that we got so many times. Dr. Teresa, I'm going to hand this one to you. Yeah, so this is a really interesting one and it actually comes down to the fact that in utero, so when a baby is developing, the sex organs start off the same. And so then we can have, you know, hormonal influences that can that, you know, put along the pathway to become to having female sex organs or male sex organs. And then there's an intersex between those when there can be sort of different um, combination of the sex organs, whether that's internally and externally. So in terms of um, squirting, and it is thought to be different to female ejaculation, and that can be, you know, present up to 50% of women even. So this is because in um, development, what becomes the prostate in the male sex organs, actually they, they become glands around the female urethra. And so the thinking is that stimulation, especially in the vagina, in that, in that G-spot area, which is in the front part or the front wall of the vagina, that's pushing towards those glands because the urethra is in front of the vagina. And so there's the thought that that's a stimulation of those glands. And then that's how you can have some fluid come through into the vagina. So it's not urine in that, in that um, case of the pre-ejaculate. It's just, you know, similar secretions. And actually, you know what, Carl, you'll find this very interesting too. They've actually measured PSA in that fluid. And PSA is the marker for, of the prostate and of prostate function. Whereas squirting, they think, is um, something to do with some liquid coming from the bladder itself. So a little bit of, you know, very dilute, um, different fluid from, from the bladder, not exactly urine. But yeah, the, the pre-ejaculate and, and that is very interesting in terms of those um, the, we call them the homologues, so the equivalence between male and female. That's amazing. Actually, are they the Bartholin's glands? Or they're the lesser vestibular glands, Dr. Carl, oh. and yeah, or the or Skeen's glands. Yeah, so the Bartholin's are more um, towards the back, but they're all part oh. of the erectile tissue of the female um, sex organs. So there's the clitoris, but then there's all this other erectile tissue of which the Bartholin's glands are and the vestibule of the vagina and, yeah. Is Carl? it true that it was only in the last 10 years or so that we discovered the true extent of the clitoris? Yes, and even to date there are studies that are looking at how well or not well that is represented even in the textbooks that students use because there's often way more pictures, especially cross-sectional pictures of the penis compared to the clitoris. Yeah. So there's lots being done in that space, which is good. Absolutely. That's something we talk about a lot on The Hookup, like just mm -hmm. having that, you know, equality and representation mm -hmm. and diversity of sex education is so important. And also, Dr. Will, thanks so much for bringing that question through. I don't know about you, but I just loved watching these two or listening to these two doctors just nerd out on this. It's great. <laughs> Dr. Eden from the Blue Mountains. Dr. Eden, what is your question? Hi, doctors. Uh, my question is, uh, is a vasectomy reversible? And if you were thinking about getting a vasectomy reversed, could you not extract the sperm without getting it reversed? Does that make sense? Both are kind of true. Um, firstly, there's a wonderful podcast on this on the Guardian website. It deals with the history of vasectomies. I learned a lot. The Guardian. 
Secondly, the vasectomy is cutting a pipe called the vas deferens, which uh, leads from the testes to the outside world. It's really easily done. It is not usually reversible, but sometimes it can be reversed. However, should you wish, you can go and get a little needle and stab it into the testes and pull out some sperm. Remember the old motto in medicine, there is no body part that cannot be reached with a four-inch needle and a strong right arm. It sounds painful. That's quite a visceral image you've just painted for us. Thank you, Dr. Carl. Um, Shall we move on or do you have something to add to this, Dr. Teresa? It's interesting to um, know that males who have cystic fibrosis, actually that tube that takes the sperm from the testes through the penis into the outside world, it actually degenerates and it's not there. And so people with cystic fibrosis, they still have functional sperm. So exactly what Carl said can be used in that case where the sperm can be removed from the testes and used for in vitro fertilization. So it's sort of, that's a a natural vasectomy almost that they have, but medicine and science is able to get around it. Thank you so much for the question, Dr. Eden. We're gonna move on to Caitlin. Dr. Caitlin, what is your question for us? Hi doctors. Uh, So my question is in relation to different types of um, orgasms that people with vaginas can have. So just in context, I can have um, like unlimited amount of orgasms. I'm not bragging, but um, (laughs) I'm obsessed. G-spot orgasms and a blend of the two of them. But I've also heard that not only are there those types of orgasms for people with vaginas, but also um, cervical orgasms. I have also heard about nipple orgasms and anal orgasms. But is a cervical orgasm just a myth or is this something that can actually happen and how the hell do I have one? Wow. I've never heard of a cervical one. Um, I don't know. Um, Help me on this one, Dr. Teresa. Look, I've never personally heard of a... um, of, a, of, an or, of an orgasm through stimulation of the cervix. So that's an interesting one. I mean, I don't know that that's where we have tissue that is necessarily sensitive to, to that, but well, give it a whirl. <laughs> I can jump in here and say that we did a really excellent episode, a podcast on this about multiple orgasms. Mm-hmm. And we spoke to um, this incredible uh, scientist. I'm blanking on her name now, but she really like understood the science of the orgasm and talked a lot about stacked mm-hmm. ones as well. So go check that out. Not quite an answer for you, uh, Dr. Caitlin, but thank you so much for coming through with that one. I really appreciate it. And also jealous of like your infinite orgasm. <laughs> we need to talk about this more. I'll call you later. Anyway, we got a question here from uh, Annie. I'm going to play this out for you, doctors. Hi, doctors. My question is, can you get a yeast infection by being ejaculated in? Yeah. So this one is something that I uh, feel like has come up a lot for the hookup i don't know i'm going to put myself out there i'm I'm going to say i feel like i've experienced this so what's going on in general yeast prefer dark moist spaces to grow and so sure unfortunately the vagina is a welcoming home for them have they been known to be transmitted so here we're looking at an infectious agent being transmitted via the sperm? I'm suspecting probably not, but uh, anything can happen in the human body. Dr. Teresa? Yeah, so as you put amazingly um, pictorial there, Dr. Carl, about (laughs) the damp, moist, dark spaces that that Yeaston likes, is that so anything, you know, to do with though um, the potential transference of bacteria, because essentially a yeast infection comes from an imbalance in the bacteria around the vagina. And so 
definitely, you know, a penis, fingers, toys, whatever, anything around their mouth can can change that bacterial balance. But also things like having sweaty clothes, hormonal changes with a pill and pregnancy, even low immune or the use of antibiotics, all of those things can also contribute. Dr. Brendan, what's going on? What's your question? Uh, look, I hope it's not too easy for you. and It's a bit of a two-parter, but look, I just wanted to ask, um, look, what is the penis? Like, is it a muscle? Is it a tendon? Is it cartilage? And if it is a muscle, why can't I do exercises to make it bigger? And if it isn't a muscle, how am I able to like flex it and move it like you would a bicep or something? Yeah, very interesting questions and fair fair questions. You know, it's, it's a definitely a common question about whether the penis is a muscle or not. So the penis is purely erectile tissue, just with some outer lay, layers and then the skin. So when we talk about erectile tissue, that's... Um, that's really sort of soft tissue that's got a lot of little spaces inside it that then blood can flow into and the blood gets stuck in there and it doesn't come back out and so that's how we get an erection. So there are three parts of the erectile tissue of a penis and two of those actually come from the bones of the pelvis. So when you sit down and you've got those sit bones, parts of the um, penis are left and a right, they actually come from those bones and then they join together to drop down and then there's another part of erectile tissue that is towards the back part of the penis if it's dangling down, and that's where the urethra runs. So literally the penis is just um, erectile tissue. But Dr. Brendan, you do have muscles at the base of the penis, so that essentially cover over the erectile tissue where it starts. So where it's attaching from the bones and where it's attaching to a membrane under where you sit. And so, they're muscles that are kind of under your control, but you're not really able to move them because they don't do anything except for in an ejaculation and orgasm. So they, they contract as part of the spinal reflex of ejaculation and an orgasm and their contractions, that actually contributes to that sort of pulsatile release of, of the semen in an ejaculation. So unfortunately, wow. not not muscles that you can um, you can exercise to change anything about your penis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So another way of uh, looking at the erectile tissue is like a swamp. So in the case of the arteries and the veins, uh, they're pipes. The blood through, flows through the pipes, and you can think of the erectile tissue as being like a swamp where it goes in through a pipe and then it just goes every which way. And then at the other end, it can come out. And so if you reduce the amount by which it comes out, then it builds up in the swamp. You have erectile tissue in three parts of your body, the uh, penis, the clitoris and the nose, although not all in one person. That'd be very rare. Um, you know, but, so you don't have it in your penis and your nose or your clitoris and your nose, but most people with a penis don't have a clitoris on average as far as I know, on average. So um, the erectile tissue um, then is involved with the erection, but then you ask yourself, how come Stephen Hawking was able to have children after he was paralysed? Hmm. He had a motor neurone disease. So just remember the phrase point and shoot. <laughs> point and shoot. Point, and the P stands for your parasympathetic nervous system which helps you relax, uh, relax, and it is in control of erection, the point. S for shoot, S is for the sympathetic nervous system. 
and as for ejaculation. So somehow he was able to ejaculate without an erection. I'll leave that to your imagination. Oh, my goodness. I love that. Thank you so much for coming through with that question, Dr. Brendan. We're going to go now to our international fam of The Hookup. I don't want to brag, but we have international listeners, and we got a question in our Instagram DMs from Sarah. Hi, my name is Sarah Clark. I'm in Philadelphia, USA. And um, my question, I guess, is, is it possible to feel when your egg drops during your menstrual cycle because I've always had this very specific pain during that time what I imagine would be that time of my cycle and my gynecologist says that it's possible that I am feeling it but that it's a it's very rare to feel it Uh, but any other girl that I've talked to has no idea what I'm talking about so I figured this might be the right place to ask that kind of question Thanks. Dr. Teresa, do you know what she's talking about? Yeah, this is really interesting and it's a great way that um, Dr. Sarah worded that question. So at ovulation, it's quite amazing to think what happens. So the ovaries are only, you know, about three by two centimetres. But when an egg is released at ovulation, the sac that it's in that's within the ovary, it can actually grow to one and a half centimetres or even two centimetres or more. And then it's considered a cyst. And so there are certain chemicals that are released so that that egg will essentially burst out of the follicle. And at that time, women can feel that and it also can produce a bit of pain, so ovulation pain, because of the prostaglandin. So they're the things that um, medications like Nurofen work to reduce, to reduce the pain. So yeah, definitely it is possible that people can feel something at ovulation. Just because of that, you know, it's like if you had a, a cyst there as well, you can definitely feel that there's something different, um, yeah, when that egg is being released. Yeah, interesting. And, uh, well, way back when I was a drug-crazed hippie, um, uh, some of the female hippie people would say, ah, I just popped an egg right <laughs> then. This one is from Dr. Dobby from Melbourne Nam. Dr. Dobby, what's your question for us? Hey, doctors. Um, why does cum taste different per, from person to person? Semen has a lot of different components to it. So the sperm is around only 10% of the components of semen. But we also have secretions that have come from the seminal vesicles and the prostate. So other glands that are important. And actually, one the most of the volume comes from the seminal vesicles and they add fructose even so that the sperm have energy to survive their their trip up into the into the uterus and so i guess the differences between you know individuals um, semen and what that tastes like is that there can be different compositions of how much you know fructose and citrate comes from those different um the different glands and also then you know if someone has a lower sperm count then that's obviously going to change the proportion of sperm to to the other um you know, liquids that come out. So it's often said, you know, that it's a bit of salty taste due to it being the opposite of acidic so that it can survive in the vagina. If it's sweet, it's from the sugar and the fructose. And if it's a bit metallic, it's from vitamins and minerals such as the zinc. I have to say, when you, as soon as you said fructose, I was like eating pineapple, better tasting, <laughs> sweeter semen. Uh, Dr. Carl, you look like you're itching to jump in. Let us know what's, what's on your mind. Well, many bodily fluids that are excreted can change. So mm-hmm. with regard to straight human female breast milk, and bear in mind that the female breast is basically just a very modified sweat gland, the milk changes in one sitting, 
from the so-called front, middle and hind milk that over time. A classic example is the kangaroo who can have two babies on the inside of her pouch. One, a joey at foot, this little creature with gangly legs all over the place. And from one nipple, it is having a certain type of milk. And right next to it is a little baby bud sort of stuck on there. Can't get off. The nipple has expanded his mouth and it's getting a totally different milk. And as it grows, that milk will change. So it makes sense that the spermatic fluid... The various uh, liquids, can ch- liquids can change with time. Super interesting. Dr. Dobby, thank you so much for bringing that thank one you. in. Look, we've only got a couple of minutes, so I'm going to try and speed through as many as possible. We got this one from Philippa. As a woman on birth control, I don't get a regular period. But I have noticed that if I have sex with my partner, penetrative sex, that can bring on a period after multiple months of not having one. So I was wondering if having a period can be triggered by penetrative sex. Thank you. I was talking about this with uh, my producer, Imo, and we both agreed. We were like, if you get dick down, it shakes things up. It like almost triggers a period if you're kind of expecting it or if your cycle is happening. But I don't know. Like that's just anecdotal. What do you guys think? I don't want to disappoint people, but I feel like it's got to be anecdotal because really the things that trigger a period are hormonal and hormonal changes. And, you know, I guess otherwise then... This could be a method for for women or people who with periods all over being able to decide when they do and don't get them. So, yeah, I feel like that's an anecdotal um, finding and that it's really hormonal. The difference between science and screwing around is that in science you write it down. So if this happens and you have (laughs) penetrative sex and then a period comes, write it down and then get us a bunch of data points. The plural of anecdote is anecdotes. Not data. I, you know what? You've actually inspired me. I, and I, I welcome anybody to tell us when this happens to them. We are so nosy at The Hookup. We love to know everything about <laughs> what's going on in your sex, love and dating life. Dr. Carl, thank you so much for coming over into the dark side. We really appreciate you staying up late with us. And Dr. Teresa, same to you as well. You are just such an incredible brain and it was just an honour to be able to pick it. Thank you. It was fun. Thank you so much. It was fun. I hope you enjoyed this sexy science bonus app in your feeds. Thank you again to everyone who submitted a question. It was so amazing to see how curious you all are. And also very reassuring that I wasn't alone in wanting to know why period poos are such a thing. If you're feeling even more curious about science and want to consume even more knowledge about the world around us, check out the Science with Dr. Carl podcast. Every Thursday, Dr. Lucy Smith and Dr. Carl solve mysteries of the world with science, answering all your curly questions about climate change, space, belly button fluff. Honestly, nothing is off the table. You can check it out everywhere where you get your podcasts or on the Triple J app. All right, that's it from me. I'll see you next time.